Back to Matthew this morning. Turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, as we resume our study of this first gospel, we'll look this morning at verses 30, 23 to 33. 22, 23, down to 33. Every time we confess the Apostles' Creed, among other things, we say that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Do we really believe that? In our secular, I have to see it to believe it world. Believing that our bodies laid in the ground are going to rise from the dead is increasingly difficult. Then again, our whole faith is tied to this truth. Otherwise, life doesn't matter much. It's almost gone. Do what you please. It'll be over soon. Well, the people of our day are not the first to question the resurrection from the dead. That was the challenge brought to Jesus in our text this morning. Let me read it. Matthew 22, verse 23. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scripture or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Let's start by catching up where we were the last time we were in Matthew, which was back before the holidays. To do so, we need to know who the players are in this section of the book. Among the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, there were two prominent parties, two groups. The first, first there were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the Bible scholars of the day. They were a very pious group. They were meticulous law keepers. And you may remember when we last studied Matthew, it was the Pharisees who were trying to trap Jesus. Their issue was whether devout Jews who wanted to serve the Lord and give everything to the Lord should pay taxes to the pagan Romans who served other gods. How can that be? Remember Jesus' classic answer, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and give to God what's God's. 
But then there's another party of Jewish leaders. They were called the Sadducees. Pharisees and the Sadducees. This was a smaller group, but a very powerful group for the priests of Israel who wielded the political power in Israel were Sadducees mostly, perhaps altogether. They were the liberal secular leaders of the day. They did not believe much of what the Pharisees, the Bible scholars, believed. For example, they denied that there was any resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees denied any immortality or any life after death. They denied the existence of any reward or punishment after death. They denied the existence of angels or spirit beings of any type. They denied any idea of providence where God had a hand in controlling what happens on the earth. And they did not accept most of the Old Testament scriptures. They accepted only the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Josephus, the Jewish historian of the day, wrote, the Sadducees, in contrast to the Pharisees, gave no place to the overruling providence of God, but emphasized that all that happens to us is the result of the good and evil that we do. He goes on to quote the Sadducees themselves, claiming, quote, all things lie within our own power so that we ourselves are responsible for our own well-being while we suffer misfortune through our own thoughtlessness. Sounds like the world today, doesn't it? You see, you can remember who the Sadducees were by simply remembering they did not believe most of what the Bible says, so they were sad, you see. That's how I remember it. Which brings us to our first of two points. God will raise us from the dead. God will raise us from the dead. That was exactly what the Sadducees did not believe. So they raised the issue with Jesus. But that's how our text begins, verse 23. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. It's pretty, pretty easy to see that their question was not an honest inquiry, but a trap. Here in this first verse, before they even ask the question, Matthew clearly tells us that they did not believe the resurrection, so they were not asking Jesus for his wisdom on an important issue. At best, they sought to drag Jesus into a dispute they had with the Pharisees. At worst, they sought to humiliate Jesus by forcing him into an impossible dilemma. The question reminds me of when I was a teenager trying to defend my faith and someone taunted me with the famous sophomoric question, if God is all-powerful, can he make a rock so big that he cannot pick it up? I didn't know how to answer that. But I did know it was not an honest question. It was an attempt to mock my faith. The Sadducees, of course, were more sophisticated in their cynicism. They actually took a biblical command and twisted it into an absurdity 
Their question, question was based on instruction about leveret marriage, it's called. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, if you want to look it up sometime. There we read that God, in his concern to maintain the lineage of the families of Israel, instructed that if a man married and then died before he had a child, his brother would marry his widow and their firstborn son would be considered the son of the brother to carry on the deceased brother's lineage. On this day, the Sadducees seized upon this practice that God had ordained for Israel in order to make resurrection sound absurd. What if the widow went through seven brothers as husbands and never had a child, and then she died? If there's a resurrection where we live again, who will she be married to? All seven? They thought they had Jesus in a perfect trap. He must either deny that there really is a resurrection, or he must approve of a woman being married to seven men at once. You see, it was the rejection of Jesus that drove this question. But Jesus calls their hand. In verse 29, he points out two reasons why they're in error. He says, you're in error because you do not understand the scriptures. You don't know the scriptures. And you do not know the power of God. And so we're going to look at those two things. From the scripture, Jesus proves that God will raise us from the dead. To prove this point, Jesus took them back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. By the way, notice how graciously Jesus deals with these people that came to mock him and to tie him in knots. Remember, they only accept the Pentateuch as God's word. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's all. The other, what, 22 books of the Old Testament, they don't regard that as scripture. Now, there are many places in the Old Testament that Jesus could have taken them to prove that God will raise the dead. But Jesus graciously points them to one verse in Deuteronomy, one of the few books they did recognize as the scripture. Specifically, he points them to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, where we read God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Well, what does that prove concerning God raising the dead? Oh, Jesus makes it very clear. He goes on to say, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living you see, the Sadducees were rationalists. They trusted in human reason. They trusted their ability to figure things out rather than to believe what God's word said. But Jesus teaches them how to reason properly. God gave us our minds. We ought to reason, but we need to reason properly. How to start with what God says and then reasonably try to figure out the implications of that. That's what Jesus does. So that's how he deals with them. Jesus knew, and they knew, and we know if we go look it up, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died 
four to five hundred years before Moses was born. So that, so what Jesus points out is, for God to say to Moses, there at the burning bush in Exodus 3, for God to say to Moses, I am that I am. That's what you call me. I am. For him to say that he has an I am relationship with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Well, that would be to deny that he is. If they're dead, he's not I am to them. He was I was or something. But here's an answer. But Jesus says, if Jesus says that concerning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they must be alive. For God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. There's an answer simple enough a child can understand it, though profound enough that it challenges the minds of philosophers. But the bottom line is always the same. God declares that he will raise us from the dead. According to John 5, God will raise everyone from the dead, some to be then destroyed in judgment, some who are joined to Christ to live with him eternally. Dear people, we need to live in light of this reality. What Jesus said is true. What the Bible says is true. And it was verified by Jesus' own resurrection. In our day, it's easy to forget this and slip into some powerless, hopeless, secularized religion like the Sadducees. But when this eternal perspective grips our conscience, we begin to see our whole life in terms of stewardship to the Lord. We see the struggles as only temporary with a final victory assured for God will raise us from the dead to new life. But Jesus was not through with these Sadducees. There's another important point. That's this. We do not yet understand life after death. We do not yet understand life after death. There are few things so confused and misunderstood as life after death. Generally, this life is referred to as heaven. We hear of pearly gates and streets of gold. Many believe we'll be angels without bodies or gender, with wings flying around, playing harps or whatever. And this text has been used to propagate that kind of thinking. But our resurrection life will be much different from those stereotypes. Let me tell you some things we do know for certain from the rest of the scripture. We will live in a new world, a new heaven and a new earth. Probably something more akin to the original paradise where Adam and Eve lived. We will have bodies. That's how God made humans, body and soul. Jesus says there will be no marriage. And indeed, there will 
be no need to, to uh, procreate anymore. But he never says that we, that we will be something other than male and female humans. Nor does he suggest that we will know nothing of loving one another. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 13 that of all the things, love will remain. So there's much mystery about resurrection life. We don't begin to understand it. <clears throat> Ritterboss writes, when we try to discover what constitutes the bliss of the life of the resurrection, we nowhere find an explicit description. We don't know. We have lots of glimpses, though. This eternal life is called a consolation. It's called being filled with righteousness and mercy. It's called seeing God. It's called sitting down with Abraham. It's called being saved. It's called shining like the sun. It involves finding our lives, sitting down at the wedding feast of the Lamb, entering into the joy of the Lord. It's called inheriting the kingdom, drinking the new wine with the Savior, and inheriting the earth as heaven comes down and is heaven on earth. But even beyond this, in verse 29, Jesus says, you're in error because you do not know, do not trust, do not reckon with the power of God. This was the Sadducees' problem, and it might be yours, and it might be mine. They just assumed that life after the resurrection, if it should exist, would be just like life today. They could not fathom that God might do something absolutely beyond their comprehension. But that's exactly what God promises. The power of God unleashed in the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. We cannot imagine how glorious that will be. But the fact that we don't understand it does not mean it's not true. Dear people, we have often fallen, it fallen into the Sadducees' mindset. Perhaps we do not have the cynicism with which they demanded answers from Jesus. But we certainly have adopted the assumption that God might only ever do what we can understand and explain. And once we adopt such a mindset, we tend to flatten all God's promises down to what we can comprehend with our little pea brain. We just, when, when, so, so when Jesus describes the blessings of the gospel and says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Well, we just assume he's speaking in hyperbole. He's exaggerating things. He couldn't actually mean that. 
And when he tells us that it's his intention to conform us entirely to the perfect image of our Savior. Well, that sounds a little lofty, but it's unrealistic. And when he says, ask and you will receive, we assume that's just a cliche. Doesn't really, this isn't really a promise. And when he promises that his Holy Spirit indwelling us would become like a fountain of living water that just keeps bubbling up and changing us, well, that's uh, poetic language, isn't it? That couldn't be a life-changing, holy presence of God in our life, bringing power and peace and contentment within us. Or could it? So it's not surprising that when the Lord talks about raising these bodies from the dead and us living again in a new heaven and a new earth, we just assume he probably means something less than that. Perhaps some ethereal existence of the soul flying around being the butterfly or whatever nonsense. We can't understand. We do not yet comprehend what God is going to do. We live in a day of rampant unbelief. People live for the moment, largely not believing or caring whether there's anything yet to come. But time takes its toll on us, and before long, we're forced to wonder, is this really all there is? And if it is not all there is, we may suddenly realize we're in a terrible situation without God and without hope in this world. But not only is resurrection life a reality, Jesus came to make it a reality for us. We cannot earn God's favor, but he has shown us his favor before, before we even cared about it. He came into the world to take our punishment, dying on the cross to pay for our sins, rising from the dead to give us eternal life, to take those who abandoned hope in themselves and trusted Jesus into his family, into an eternal family. That's what he's done for us. So this morning I call you to come to him and trust in him. Come confessing your sin and unworthiness. Come trusting and resting in who he is and what he's done. For Jesus promised, whoever believes in me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's passed over from death to life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're talking about things we can't comprehend. We're like the Sadducees. We want to trust our brain. We want to trust what we can see and measure. And we think we have it all figured out, and we don't have a clue. Give us a grace to believe what you say in your word, to not be like them, ignorant of the Bible, and then to believe that you are able to do what we cannot comprehend, though we don't understand it, though we can't get our minds around it. Oh, Father, you do whatever you please. We know that. If you made this glorious earth that we still see the glory of, even though sin has just ravaged it, oh, what might you do in the future? Give us faith to trust you and to live today in the hope 
eternal life because we know Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.